Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. I'm going to read also the epistle appointed for the day. This is the Sunday within the octave of Christmas, of the Nativity. This is from uh, St. Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Brethren, so long as the heir is a child, he differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath set forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Merry Christmas. We're in the octave of Christmas. Every major feast day uh, in the Western tradition has an octave. In the East, they call it the leave-taking of a feast. We, uh, we, we call it an octave. We like this eighth-day uh, thing where you have you know, the first, second, third, fourth, etc., a day all the way through the seventh. That's a complete week. Um, and then... The next day could either be the first day of a new week or the eighth day, which is uh, rich in symbology in the in the scriptures. Early on the first day of the week is when Jesus was risen, but that's also the um, eighth day, the, the new day. Uh, of course, the world ever since creation has been on a seven-day cycle. Uh, God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh, and then the cycle begins again. But uh, throughout the scriptures... People have imagined the eighth day being the first of a new creation. And so um, we, we measure our major feasts in the church also by the eighth day. And so that's why uh, we say this is the uh, Sunday within the octave of Christmas, because that's how Christmas is measured. Christmas, and then there's the octave. Now, of course, we have more ways to measure Christmas beyond that. We have the 12 days of Christmas that we know of. That's, of course, from Christmas Day until uh, the Feast of Epiphany. Um, oh, also, I should say that the eighth day of Christmas also happens to be uh, the Feast of the Circumcision of our Lord, which uh, occurred eight days after he was born, according to the law. Um, this is when he was taken to uh, the, the local synagogue to be circumcised according to the law. The first time blood was drawn from our Lord, and also to receive his name, the name that St. Joseph gave him. In the gospel today, it said that uh, when Mary had brought forth her son, they gave him the name Jesus, as the angel had told them to do. And they did that on the eighth day, according to the law. Um, then we have the twelfth night uh, of, of Christmas ending in the Feast of Epiphany, uh, which we celebrate as the wise men from the east, the Gentiles coming and uh, seeing the revelation of God in the world. So this isn't only a revelation for the, um, for the Jews, for Israel, but also for the whole world, a light to enlighten the Gentiles. And then, of course, Christmas, 
the season of Christmas really ends with the Feast of the Purification, which is 40 days after Christmas. So we measure it by the eighth day, by the 12 days of Christmas, and then by the 40 days of Christmas, which goes all the way to the Feast of the Purification, which our uh, office reading from the Gospel today described when Mary and Joseph um, take Jesus to Jerusalem, to the temple there, uh, for the fulfilling of the law, because, of course, he is the son that opened the womb, um, as the law says, and he has to be uh, dedicated to God. Uh, he, he is special to God. And so when they took him to the temple, of course, Simeon and Anna, the two uh, holy elders there in the temple, recognized him for um, who he was, something special, not just for Israel, but as Simeon also said, a light to enlighten the Gentiles. So that's just a note on how we measure the days of Christmas. So today is the Sunday within the octave, within the first eight days of Christmas. And our gospel reading for Mass this morning is the account of how Christ's birth came to be. And it's interesting that this account was given like this. Um, in, in the words of St. Matthew, he says that the birth of Jesus Christ was this way. This is how it happened. Now, why, why would he need to describe the circumstances of uh, the discovery of Joseph of the pregnancy of Mary and the birth of Christ after he had just, right before the reading begins, he names all the generations from Adam all the way to Christ. Now, having given the ancestors of Christ, generally we know that you know, ancestors result in a person. Uh, all these generations leading up to a couple uh, results in, in, a, in a new person, in a birth. But after giving all these generations, Matthew says, but this is how this one happened. So we know from Matthew's words that something interesting, something special is going on in this case. And he goes on to describe, of course, how Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant and being a just man decides to not make a public example of her. Well, first of all, he couldn't keep her, could he? Uh, she, she is clearly pregnant and not by him, and so you can't keep a woman like that because it, it makes, um, the expectation is that you have to put her away. Uh, you, you can't live with her unless there's just a carnal desire to, to, to keep her around for yourself. And that's not, that's, that's like living with a woman for the wrong reasons. And so the expectation is that you make an example of her and say, no, You've done something wrong. I can't be a part of this. And so you expose what she's done. And according to the law, um, a very harsh punishment would, uh, would follow on that. But Joseph, neither wanting to live with her because of this, nor wanting her to be uh, cruelly, harshly punished, um, decides to put her away secretly. And this is truly the mark of a just man. Um, a man already, without knowing it, in proximity to the Son of God on earth. We see that um, Mary accepts the word of the Lord even before the Lord is conceived in her womb because the proximity of God on earth is already um, working in her. The holiness of the Lord is already inspiring her heart to say yes. We see that um, her cousin Elizabeth prophesies when when. Uh, the, the infant Jesus in her womb comes near to her in proximity and, and cries out with the Holy Spirit. Even 
John, who is in the belly of her cousin Elizabeth, in proximity to the infant Jesus in the womb of Mary, leaps for joy just because he's near God on earth. And here Joseph, without even knowing it, near God on earth, is inspired to behave justly as God would want. And so he decides to put her away secretly, privily, as a word I wish we still had around, as the King James puts it, privily. But once he has been inspired to do this justly for the sake of this woman, who he believes is an adulterer at this point, an adulteress, and yet who he doesn't want to punish, in his sleep, an angel comes to him. I don't, I don't think it says for sure, just as an angel of the Lord, I like to think it was probably Gabriel, the same angel who came to Zacharias in the temple and told him about John, the same angel who came to Mary. I like to think that it was Gabriel who's been involved in all this, who comes to Joseph in his sleep and says, so about that pregnancy, uh, this, is, this is actually the Lord's doing. She's pregnant not by any man, but by the Holy Spirit. Now, had Gabriel come to Joseph, I always wondered this, why didn't why didn't the angel come to Joseph and tell him first, you know, like what, why, why torture him with this whole, you know, Oh, she's, she's uh, pregnant. What am I going to do? Um, Joseph obviously has thought about these things. The scripture says after thinking about these things, the angel comes to him. So he's been, it's been weighing heavy on his mind. We know that. So why wasn't he spared this, this drama, this um, anxiety? Well, we see that when the angel came to another man, Zacharias, in the temple, before his wife had become pregnant, he didn't actually believe the angel. And because of his disbelief, he was struck dumb. He couldn't talk for a while. Without seeing the result, without seeing the actual child growing in the womb, uh, the, the belief was almost too much. The message was too much to bear. And it might have been the same for Joseph. Had an angel just showed up and said, hey, uh, this woman who you're going to be taking as your wife, she will become pregnant by the Holy Ghost. What's Joseph to do with that? But having seen that the woman is already pregnant, and obviously his spirit is troubled uh, by the idea of exposing her as an adulteress, something already in his heart is inclining to believe the angel when he comes to him in his sleep and says, Joseph, what you see has already taken place. This is the cause. So Joseph rises and we don't have the account of him coming to Mary and talking about this, but I have to believe that Mary, having been silent about the circumstances of her own pregnancy, about the annunciation of, of Gabriel, this angel to her. And remember, she goes off to visit her, her cousin Elizabeth uh, right after the annunciation. So she goes off. She's gone for several months. Elizabeth gives birth to John. Mary comes back. And by this point, she's showing. So she's been away. She comes back and she's clearly pregnant. And... Who knows how much contact her and Joseph had had before, uh, before the angel comes to Joseph in his sleep. But after he's told in his sleep, this is what's happening. I have to imagine that he goes to, he goes to Mary and he says, Mary, I, I had this, this dream. Here's, here's what was told to me. And Mary, smiling, confirms this is what happened to me. Um, that's why I like to think Gabriel was responsible for, for both of those messages. So Matthew says that Joseph did not fear, but went ahead and took Mary as his wife. And of course, 
our tradition is that Joseph, by this point, was already an older man. Mary was a very young woman, uh, probably in her teens, having spent most of her life serving in the temple. She now is um, uh, a woman with you know, womanly um, uh, issues, and so she can no longer be in the temple because of laws of cleanliness and, and such. But she also has no family. She has uh, her, her parents were elderly. Uh, presumably they uh, are, are passed away by this point. She needs someone to take her in to protect her. Um, Joseph, being an older righteous man, fulfills this role. Um, but there is still the, the propriety of having you know, a, a clean, non-adulterous wife, which is why he was going to put her away when he discovered she was pregnant. But now that he knows the truth... He has a role and a responsibility. This is why we call him the righteous Joseph, the caretaker of, of the Lord and his mother, because he acts in such a way as to guard and take care of um, not just the Lord, the, this miracle, um, miracle child, but also his mother, the, the one chosen to bear this miracle child. And so the righteous Joseph takes Mary into his house um, gives her the protection of marriage and did not know her as the scripture says till she had brought forth her firstborn son and of course this doesn't mean that after she had brought forth her firstborn son he did know her what it means is all the way up until this happened uh, they hadn't had relations and so we know that this this pregnancy is not the result of Joseph or of any man it's just to confirm that this pregnancy is a miracle, and it's also you don't you don't there's no there's no there's no violating uh, a, a sacred temple like the womb of the Virgin Mary had been made because the Holy Spirit had indwelt her. I want to turn back over to the epistle reading for today. This is Saint Paul writing to the Galatians, and he's he's writing about what this means, the birth of God on earth, what it means for us. He says that, um, he's, he's using an example of uh, an heir to a kingdom that's still a child. When this heir is still a child, um, there's really no difference in that child than any of the servants of the household. The child has no power, uh, no authority to do anything. He's just in the house and he's kind of being taken care of by by all the people and, uh, and, and, and the child, the heir of the king, doesn't, can't wield his, his power. His heirness means, means nothing until he reaches a certain age. And he says, just like that, we were born to be heirs of God, but we weren't old enough yet. We, didn't, we weren't in the right place. Uh, we weren't mature enough. The time wasn't right. And so we... Um, were under the tutors and governors, as he calls it, um, until the appointed time. And those tutors and governors are really kind of the same thing as, as, as jailers. You know, <laughs> you can't get out from underneath them. You're, you're, you're bound under these certain circumstances. And that's where we were, all those generations that Matthew names leading up to Christ. These were people who were born to be heirs, but couldn't take that title yet. They couldn't grasp it. All of humanity was in this situation. And what is that situation? What are these tutors and heirs? We're in bondage under what Paul calls the elements of the world. 
Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. We were in bondage under a way of life, a way of thinking, a philosophy, a, 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 a way of practicing our relationships and our governance of ourselves and everything else that didn't allow us to step into the fullness of what we were created to be. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. What is this fullness of time? I love the phrase, but it needs unpacking. Again, going back to, to Matthew's generations from Adam to uh, Moses to uh, Adam to Abraham to Moses to David uh, to the through the the kings of Israel and finally up to he gives the generations up to uh, Joseph, but we also know that Mary uh, Mary's generations are given in I, I believe uh, Luke in a different gospel. Anyway, all these generations lead up to Christ and they're numbered, um, and and so there's a pattern. There's there's clearly something. Um, at work in all of this. And so in that sense, it was at the fullness. It was a clear design of God from this generation to that. And you count them up and they're divided in a certain way. And then after this pattern, finally Christ comes. And so that's the fullness of time in that sense. But that's just within the people of Israel. Externally, beyond them, the fullness of time, what was going on in the world at this time? Rome was now the largest, most successful global empire. I say global. For them, they, 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 had, they conquered the whole world. They, they went about as far east as they could or cared to go, and they went about as far west. They went all the way to the British Isles. Uh, they, they got as far up north in the British Isles as, as possible, and, and then the Picts were like, uh, we're, we don't like you, and so Hadrian built the wall. And, and, but close enough. I mean, they were everywhere. The Romans, they were everywhere. They spread um, the Latin language among the barbarians in the West, and they knew Greek well enough. That had been spread by the, the, the Greek Empire a little earlier in the East, and so they, they figured out how to do this military and political system where they ruled everything, and everything was pretty, pretty peaceful. I mean, there were rebellions, like in, in, in Judea, as the Romans called it. Uh, they weren't a fan of that, but for the most part, the Romans wanted two things. They wanted to control everything and they wanted everybody to behave so that they could control everything. Well, in this context, travel was way easier than it had ever been before. They built roads. They had uh, shipping, you know, regular shipping lanes. Um, people spoke at least two major languages. And so communication was way easier than it had ever been. And so for the first time ever, the world was ready and primed for the message of this, this angel, the message the angel brought, this thing called Christianity. The world was primed. And so even politically speaking, we could say this was a fullness prepared for um, this message. But I think... On top of that, there's an even more mystical reality to the fullness of time. I don't know what that is, but I, given the words of Paul speaking of us like we were children, just not ready. We were unprepared. We were under the elements of this world, but then in the fullness of time, we were ready for this. Something about our human nature, our maturity, the, the, uh, the way that we were 
in our hearts and our souls. Maybe there was something in the world in general with humans that we were just, it was time. We were ready. There's a lot of God, you know, doing things for the Hebrews throughout the centuries, and they're just not ready. They don't. First, he, he reveals himself as Elohim, the God Almighty, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. They weren't ready for the name of God yet. But then when Moses comes, he says, I didn't reveal myself by my name to them, but now to you, I'm telling you that my name is I am that I am, Yahweh. I didn't reveal myself to them by my name, just God Almighty, but now to you, I am the Lord, your God, I am Yahweh. And then from there, he revealed more and more of himself, more and more of himself. He gave them uh, certain sacrifices to teach them how to do things. But then later, he said, your sacrifices make me sick because you don't know what this is really about. What it's really about is an attitude of the heart. I want cleanliness of your heart. I want real repentance. I want real communion with you. That's what these sacrifices are about. And so you see through the centuries, he teaches them more and more and more. First, there's this idea of resurrection that's used as sort of an image for God liberating people, like literally, like taking them out of the bondage of Egypt or out of the bondage of uh, Babylon or something like that. But then later, they realize, no, the, the, the imagery is being freed from Egypt and Babylon, and the reality is resurrection. And so we, we were growing this whole time. God was bringing us along. He was teaching us. He was bringing us up under these tutors. And finally, in the fullness of time, we're ready to meet God himself. The reality that all of this had pointed toward. The tutors who couldn't, they couldn't liberate us into our true reality, into our true nature. But finally, now, in the fullness of time, God has come. And how did God come? He was made of a woman and made under the law. God, in a sense, kneels down to us as his children, as his heirs, and picks us up and says, now you are my true heir. Not an heir apparent, not, not an heir under tutors, but my heir that belongs to me. I no longer call you servants. I now call you sons. And of sons, then heirs. And we are heirs through adoption because Christ, the true son, the true heir, has united himself to us. Christmas is, I think, the most profound of the holidays in the church year. Easter, of course, is the culmination of all that Christ came to do in this world. But in Christmas... We're just struck with the sheer wonder of it. It's amazing. No one thought it would be this way. No one had prepared for this. We were, we were children. We didn't know what we were doing. We, we were under tutors who didn't know what was coming. God surprised us in the best way possible. So during the rest of this Christmas season, tomorrow is, is, um, tomorrow is January 1st the octave of Christmas and also the feast of the circumcision of the Lord, his naming. Then in Epiphany, we get to really think about, you know, well, it's not just the Epiphany to a few people in Israel. It's now being made known to the whole world. So throughout the rest of this season, 
let the awe just sit with you, sit in it, you know? Let, let, it, let it surprise you, let it amaze you, and be grateful for the way that God turned us in to sons and heirs from mere children, mere servants in his household, people who didn't know what to expect, who were uh, in folly. In the world, go. we're going to walk outside and see immediately that the world is still under these elements of the world. They're still under tutors. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to look for. Just because this happened in a universal sense doesn't mean that it is uh, actualized in every one of us. We have to continue actualizing it in the world. We have to bring it about. We have to step into our station. We have to live as sons and heirs of God. And as we do that, we continue the epiphany to the world. We make it known more and more. But that's our role. That's what we do. The fullness of time is still... Time is a funny thing. Just because we've reached it doesn't mean that it's reached everywhere else. That makes sense. The fullness of time is a cosmic event, but we have to make it real in the world that we live in. So, as Christians, I think it's our duty to try to let the awe change our hearts. It's so easy for me to be cynical and cut off it, it takes an effort for me to sit in awe and let it transform me. But that's, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. It's what all of us are supposed to be doing. And as our hearts are transformed, then may our prayer be that God inspires us to live as true sons and heirs and to take, to follow his true son and heir, Christ, our Lord, to take his path into the world, wherever that leads us. It's going to involve carrying our cross. It's not, a, it's not a, a fun thing always. The day after Christmas, we celebrate the first martyr of the church, St. Stephen. That's, that's the path. That's, that's our path. That's how sons and heirs have to act in this world. But that's where the truth is. As the, as the disciple said, if Christ asks us, are you going to leave me too? You have the words of truth. Where else are we going to go? There's nowhere else worth going. Just because it's painful doesn't mean that anywhere else is is more worth being. So, Merry Christmas. Let the awe transform your hearts and may God give us the strength to live truly as sons and heirs of him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.